I was a kid growing up in a small town in Colorado. Every 4th of July, we'd have a fishing derby. Had a little fishing pond in the center of town. Every year, the city fathers would stock this thing with fish. And fathers and mothers and sons and daughters would gather and spend the entire day pulling reams of fish out of this little pond. And I remember when I was six, I went down there, spent the entire day, fish just crawling all over each other to vie for the honor of biting the hooks that were dangled in front of them, and I caught nothing the whole day, zip. And I was so uh, discouraged at that experience that I did not actually touch a fishing pole for another 30 years. <laughs> it wasn't until this uh, last summer when I went on the men's retreat that I borrowed some equipment and fished again. And Mark Brown, an expert fisherman in our fellowship, set me up, and uh, I changed my luck, reversed my fortunes, and actually caught some fish. However, we must have used the wrong film because when we got the... Uh, but the pictures back, the fish were a lot smaller in the pictures than they were when I caught them. So even that wasn't uh, as uh, exciting as it might have been. But I'd like to have you turn to Luke 5, and we will encounter another frustrated fisherman in this story. This is one of the real fish stories in the Bible, and I would like to this morning. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. This little narrative breaks nicely down into three sections. There's first of all in verses 1 through 3, the setting for this miracle. In verses 4 through 7, Luke records for us the miracle itself. Then in verses 8 through 11, we see Simon Peter's response. Let's look first of all at the setting for the miracle in the first three verses. Now it came about that while the multitude were pressing around him, And listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the multitudes from the boat." Luke tells us that this took place by the shore, by the edge of the Lake of Gennesaret. This is more commonly known as the Sea of Galilee, but it's actually a lake about seven miles across and 13 miles from north to south. But it's a large lake, and so is often referred to as the Sea of Galilee. Luke refers to it as the Lake of Gennesaret, referring to a fertile plain, which was to the south of the city of Capernaum, and my guess is that as Jesus taught this crowd as they gathered at the edge of the lake, that he could see this fertile plain spread out behind them, and therefore referred to this as the lake of Gennesaret. It's interesting to ask ourselves what Jesus was was doing here in the first place. We know from the last verse of the preceding chapter, if you glance up, you'll see that Jesus was still at this point customarily and regularly teaching in their synagogues. This was before he'd been thrown out of any decent synagogue in the land. And so each Saturday, the people who lived in this area around the Sea of Galilee were accustomed to hearing him teach from the scriptures. So what's he doing out by the lake of Gennesaret? Well, my guess is that the people just couldn't get enough of his teaching. That once a week simply was not enough. And so they approached Jesus after one of the synagogue services and 
said, Lord, we'd really like to hear from you more. Would you, would you consent to holding the first uh, annual midweek Bible conference in history this next week? Jesus said, I would be glad to. I'll meet anybody that wants to down at the edge of the lake Tuesday morning, 10 o'clock. Now, Luke tells us that the appeal in the teaching of the Lord was that he taught them the word of God. That's what he says in verse 1. I think that's what drew people to the teaching of the Lord. They realized that here was someone who wasn't simply giving to people the highest uh, human thoughts about life, but here was teaching, here was a perspective on life that came from the heart and the mind of God himself. It had an authority and an insight to it that penetrated to the very issues of life. And this drew people because their deepest hungers were met in the teaching of the Lord. And that is still uh, true today, that uh, throngs still all around the world gather to hear the Word of God taught. And when the Scriptures are taught as the Word of God, and these truths and insights are explained to people and and opened uh, to them, it meets the deepest hungers of the human heart, and this draws people. And in contrast, in churches where the Word of God is no longer taught, uh, people stay away by the truckload. I've been told that in order to even hear Chuck Swindoll preach, you must get there a half hour early just in order to get a seat. He's a dynamic speaker, but the appeal is that he teaches the Word of God, and that what draws people. And that's what happened to Jesus. We're told that the people were pressing around him as he stood by the sea. Evidently, the Word had gotten out to these communities. There were nine or ten communities around the Lake of Galilee, each with a population of at least 15,000. And so probably hundreds of people, possibly even thousands, had streamed from these villages to hear the Lord teach this morning by the Sea of Galilee. And they were pressing around him, crowding him. I expect what happened is uh, what would happen to us in a similar circumstance. The word got out, and then there were those early birds who got there early and staked out their spot on the beach there and plopped down their lawn chairs and their umbrellas and got their sunblock out, their coolers, and they were all set. And then some late arrivals came and sort of crowded down in front of them. Uh, And then some later arrivals came and squeezed down in front of them on the beach. And the Lord, being the gentleman that he was, simply stepped back each time a new roll filled in in the front until finally his sandals were in the surf. And he said, okay, we've got to do something about this. And at that point, the attention of the Lord was caught by a couple of fishing boats that were several yards up the beach. And these fishing boats were empty because the fishermen who had been in them were in the shallows of the Sea of Galilee washing out their fishing nets after a long and fruitless a night of fishing. And so Jesus uh, recognized the owner of one of these fishing vessels. It was Simon, whom he'd known and whose mother-in-law he'd healed in the previous chapter. And he said, excuse me, Simon, would you mind if I borrowed your boat? Simon says, sure, it hasn't done me any good. Help yourself. <laughs> so the Lord got into this boat and asked Simon to put out a little way from the shore, which Simon did. And I, my guess is that Lord got in and sat down on one of the seats in this fishing boat, and Simon shoved it out from the shore, dropped anchor, and went back to, to washing his nets, cleaning off the sand and the gravel and the kelp and the seaweed and the pop tops that you would uh, collect by dropping your net in the lake. 
So Simon goes back to cleaning his nets, and Jesus continues to, uh, to teach the word from this sitting position in this boat, which was the customary position from which rabbis taught in that culture. So we are not the first to experience a facilities uh, crunch. In fact, I've decided that if we continue to have this problem in the second hour, we're going to get a little rubber dinghy for David and put it over here in the baptistry, <laughs> and uh, that'll open up some more room here. Now, it's curious that uh, Luke does not tell us what the Lord taught, which is striking to me, but this is because what was interesting to Luke is what happened after the sermon was over. And this is what we're introduced to in verses 4 through 7. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But at your bidding, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. Now, one question that comes to mind is, why did the Lord do this miracle? Well, we will see in in just a moment that he had a lesson about Peter's future ministry as an apostle to teach him. But I think originally what happened is that the Lord's attention was simply caught by Simon's body language. In other words, he realized from the way Simon was going about cleaning the nets and putting away his fishing tackle that Simon had had a hard day at the office. I expect if we were there and could see Simon going about his business, we would see him throwing the nets around and kicking the side of the vacant boat and throwing his fishing tackle into the compartments and grumbling under his breath about how he would love to be able to go to a Bible study, but some of us have to work for a living and grumble this and grumble that. And just as a wife can tell what kind of a day her husband's had at the office when he walks in the door, or a husband can tell what kind of a day his wife has had when he walks in the door, the Lord could read Simon's body language. And he knew that this was Simon's occupation. This was his livelihood. This was how he took care of his family. And he could see the discouragement and the frustration etched in Simon's face, and he wanted to do something about that. I think there's a very encouraging lesson in that, that there are probably a number of us in this room who are feeling um, overworked, uh, underpaid, uh, experiencing little in the way of job uh, satisfaction, feeling underappreciated. And it's important to realize that when the Lord sees this, and he does, that it arouses his compassion. It arouses his interest, and he wants to move alongside and help, just as he did to Simon. And you realize in this that what the Lord is is showing to us, that there is really, from a biblical point of view, no distinction between the secular and the sacred. That from a biblical point of view, that's really an artificial distinction. That to the Lord, all of life is sacred. And he is just as concerned about our work as he is about our worship. And when he sees us frustrated, discouraged, stressed out in the marketplace, it arouses his compassion, and he wants to do something to help. 
So this is the initial impetus, I believe, for this miracle. This wasn't some sort of photo op that was pre-planned or, or pre-staged. None of the Lord's miracles were like that. None of them were, were set-ups. In fact, this took place, we're told, when he had finished speaking, and the assumption is that he had dismissed this throng. Furthermore, he tells them to put out into the deep where nobody could see this, except for Simon and his partners. So the Lord simply did this to meet a need that he saw in Simon. Now he asked him to put out into the deep and let down his nets for a catch. In other words, he says to Simon, if you will go out into the deep waters and drop your nets, you're going to catch some fish. Now Simon's response immediately is interesting enough to first of all refer to Jesus as master, which is a term of obvious respect. It was a term that was used to refer to a boss in an employment situation, to a headmaster at a school. It was used to describe someone who was the, the principal or the, the leading coach in a gymnasium. So terms like principal or boss or coach are certain terms that we would use to, to translate that same term today, term of, of respect. But he says, Master, we worked hard all night long and caught nothing. Now, Simon, being the most human of the apostles, I think we can safely reconstruct what would have been going through his mind at this point. This is what he said. But remember that Simon was the fisherman. He was good at this. He was an expert. He made his living at fishing. And he was good enough that we're told down in verse 9 that he had other companions or partners with him in the boat. In other words, he had a prosperous enough fishing business to add some hired help to the company payroll. And furthermore, Peter knew when to fish. He knew that you fished at night. That's when the fishing was the best. The worst possible time of the day to catch fish was in the middle of the day, which was when the Lord was asking him to put out into the deep. And furthermore, Simon and his, his partners had worked hard at this. They'd spent the entire night dropping their nets into the sea and finding them coming up empty. But they'd worked hard at it. They'd given it their best shot. And I'm sure that he was thinking to himself, you know, Jesus is a carpenter. You know, what does he know about fishing? This is my turf. And he must have been thinking, Lord, why don't you stick to what you're good at? You stick to making tables and preaching, and I will stick to fishing. But I think at this point, Simon must have caught a look in the eyes of the Lord. Jesus didn't say anything when uh, Simon launched into this rationalization about why this was really a foolish idea. But I think he just looked at Peter, and in mid-sentence, Peter changes his tune. And he says, but at your bidding, Lord, I will let down the nets. Now, most, I think, uh, husbands in this room have had similar conversations with their wives come home from work a little early on Friday and say, uh, Honey, I think I'm going to go uh, play some golf this afternoon. Uh, uh, but, but I could do that next week, too. Next week would be fine. Um, what I would really like to do is stay home and take care of the kids this afternoon is what I'd really like to do. And so I think that's what happened to Simon. And he does refer to him as master. He'd seen uh, Jesus heal his mother-in-law in an instant. And so Simon knew that the word of the Lord was worth taking a chance on. And so he says, at your bidding, Lord, I will uh, let down the nets. And so Simon prepares to do that. 
Now, I'm sure that as Simon went about the business of unfolding his nets and getting his fishing tackle out, that he uh, must have been thinking that this is, will be fruitless, that we will go out there, we will catch nothing, and I will be able to tell the Lord, see, I told you so. In fact, I expect he might have even been grumbling a bit as he did this. And he said, sure, I'll get these nets out that I just spent three hours washing and cleaning and folding and putting away. Sure, I'll do that and go out into the deep. But he knew that the word of the Lord was worth taking a chance on. And he was willing to do it simply because the Lord asked him to. Not because he expected anything to happen, but simply because the Lord had asked him to. Uh, last week at dinner, uh, uh, I was uh, committing the social uh, faux pas of dipping my breadsticks directly in the uh, margarine tub, which uh, our children are not permitted to do. And so uh, Debbie very politely asked me to, to stop doing that, and, and I did. And one of my kids asked me why I did that, why I just didn't go ahead and keep sticking the breadstick in the butter. And I said, well, I want to set an example for the two of you for one thing. And I love your mom, and I'm willing to do it simply because she's asked me to. And J.D. went just like this. My little five-year-old says, I can't say I blame you, Dad. <laughs> and, and that's what uh, that's what my son would have said to Simon when Simon said, I'll do it just because you asked me to. J.D. would have said, I can't say I blame you, Simon. <laughs> And so what we see in Simon here is that he had only the faith of a mustard seed, just enough faith to be willing to do what the Lord asked him to, not enough faith to think that anything would happen in response. And uh, as Jesus tells us elsewhere, this is all the faith that's necessary to move mountains. It just takes a little bit of faith in a big God to see great things happen. And that's all Simon had, but it was enough, and the Lord honored his unbelieving step of faith. And we see that recorded for us, the results in verses 6 and 7 there, that they had dropped their nets out in the deep waters. This indicates that the kind of nets that Simon and his partners were using were what were called gill nets. There were several different kind of nets that fishermen would use. One was called a drag net, different than the kind of net that was used here. Drag net was kind of like a, a volleyball net, Uh, with flotation devices attached to the top of the net and weights to the bottom. Then each end of the dragnet would be hooked off to a boat, which would form kind of a semicircle, and they would use this kind of net in the shallow waters, and the boats would head to shore and drag all the fish up on the beach, and then they'd sift through them and save the ones they wanted to keep. But a gill net was slightly different. It was the sort of net you would use in the deeper waters of the lake, and it would be a very large circular net. The perimeter of the net would be on a flotation devices, and then the net itself would simply sink into the depths of the water. And it was called a gill net because a fish of a certain size, the mesh was of, of such a size that fish of a certain size, the most marketable kind, would be able to swim into the net. Bigger fish couldn't get in. Smaller fish could swim in and out quite easily. But the larger, or the fish of just the right size would swim into the net, would realize immediately that they were in a net and would try to back out. And their gills would flare and they would be caught in the edge of the net. 
And then as the fishermen pulled the nets in, they would peel the fish out of the mesh one by one and drop them into their boat and bring the boats into land. This is the kind of net that Simon and his companions in his boat dropped into the Sea of Galilee. And immediately they enclosed a great quantity of fish. The word for quantity here is from the Greek word that we get our word uh, plethora from. Howard Cosell was doing the play-by-play for this. He would say they've enclosed a veritable plethora of fish. But a massive quantity of fish were caught in these gill nets. Such a great quantity, so many of the mesh holes were plugged with fish that the nets began to tear apart under the sheer weight of the fish. And so Simon and his companions began frantically reaching down into these gill nets and extracting fish and throwing them into the bottom of the boat and reaching in and grabbing more fish. And pretty soon they realized they had more fish in this gill net than they could hold in their own boat. And so they frantically signaled to their partners in the other boat, and they would have developed some sort of semaphore system because often they would be fishing too far apart to be heard. And so they would have different... uh, Signals for going to a different part of the lake or going in for a coke break or we are in desperate trouble, please come right now. And that was the signal they sent. And so James and John, who were in the other boat, came hustling over as fast as they could and they helped Simon and his hired help offload these fish out of the gill nets into their boat. And they offloaded so many fish from these gill nets that not only Simon's boat but also the boat of James and John began to sink. They began to ship water, and they realized we have no more room in either of our boats for more fish, and so they simply had to stop and let the rest of the catch go. We're told later, by the way, that they left everything at this point and followed him, and it's intriguing to speculate that this one catch was big enough that it might have sustained them for a year or two, just as one big real estate commission can carry you for months. This catch alone might have been enough to support them and their families so that they could spend their full time following and learning from the Lord. Now, at this point, I think it's interesting to, to speculate on the body language you might have seen if we'd been able to observe Jesus. We know that he was still in the boat... He had asked Simon to get in the boat where he was seated and to go out into the deep waters. And Jesus, being a carpenter and not a skilled fisherman, probably sat either at the front of the boat or at the stern. And I expect, as he watched Simon and his friends go through this frantic business of hauling in these fish, that he must have chuckled to himself several times, shook his head a few times, and probably through the whole episode had this little smile toying at the corners of his mouth. Well, at any rate, Simon and his friends offload all the fish that they can. Simon stops, wipes his brow, and then he sees Jesus sitting at the back of the boat. And we see his reaction in verses 8 through 11. When Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching 
men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now to visualize this episode, almost certainly Peter was standing amidships when this happened. Jesus was sitting probably in the stern of the boat or perhaps at the front. And uh, all of Simon's companions, just as he did, were overtaken with amazement, sheer astonishment, that there was no question in their mind that this was a genuine miracle. No one had ever had this sort of success fishing in the middle of the day in the Sea of Galilee. But, But quite typically, Peter is the only one who does anything with his astonishment. The rest were content to stand around with their mouths hanging open. Peter had to do and say something. And so Peter, seeing the Lord, suddenly realizes in just a blinding flash his own sinfulness and the sinlessness of the one who's sitting in his boat. And so Peter evidently slogs his way through about three feet of half-dead flopping fish to make his way to the place where Jesus is sitting, drops to his knees again in three feet of flopping fish and probably three or four inches of water and seizes the Lord's feet and says, Lord, go away from me. I've always found that a bit humorous that he races all the way across the boat to tell the Lord to keep his distance. But... (laughs) But what he reflects in that when he drops to his feet before the Lord and says, Depart from me, O Lord, is that he realized uh, a truth, which is also true for all of us, that he had no right uh, to be in the presence of Christ. He could only remain in the presence of the Lord if the Lord was gracious and merciful to him. He had no right to be in the presence of this one. And he realized in that episode that he was sinful. You notice that Peter says, says, not that I have done a sinful deed, but he says that I am a sinful man. In other words, this episode had revealed something to Simon about the blackness and the sinfulness of his very nature. And he realized that he was in the presence of the sinless one and felt quite tawdry and and shabby in his presence. Now, we're not really told about what it was that made Simon feel his deep sense of sinfulness in this episode, but my guess is that he realized in in that moment something which is true for all of us, just how sinful it was for him to think that he knew better how to run his life than the Lord did. And he realized how sinful it was to question the Lord's judgment and to question his instructions about life. And how sinful it is to think that the instructions of the master sort of work in ideal situations but aren't really designed for the rough and tumble hard knocks of daily life and really won't work out on the marketplace where the pressure's on. We uh, manifest some of that same skepticism, I think, when we become upset with how the Lord is treating us. We know enough theology to know that the Lord is totally in charge of our circumstances. And we see the things that are happening to us and we question what the Lord is doing to us. And we'll look at some challenge that we're up against and 
we will formulate a plan that will solve every problem. And we go to the Lord and say, Now, Lord, if you'll just be kind enough to take my advice on this particular situation, you'll see how smoothly everything will work out. And the Lord seems to blithely ignore our counsel and go right on treating us as he sees fit. And it may make us angry or upset at times. And Peter realized that bedrock, how understandable that is, but how sinful in the last analysis that is. And he also realized that he was in the presence of someone who was totally without sin. Simon, to this point, had probably felt okay about himself. He was able to find some tax gatherers and sinners around to sort of compare himself to. And he stacked up okay with those guys and so probably felt okay. But what he realized in this episode, how okay you feel about yourself, all depends on who you're comparing yourself to. When he compared himself to the character and the integrity of Christ, he realized how sinful he truly was. heard a story once about a told by a man who had driven through a large metropolitan city, through the shanty town, the uh, wrong side of the tracks, and he'd driven through this part of town on laundry day. And all of the linens for this tenement area were strung on these clotheslines between the apartment buildings. And he remembered how strikingly clean they looked against the backdrop of these a graying, brown, decaying tenement buildings. A week later, he drove through the same part of town, also on laundry day with the linen strung up on these clotheslines. Only that morning, a snow had fallen and had blanketed all of these ugly gray tenement buildings with a, with a coating of pure, brilliant uh, white. And compared to that backdrop, he realized how dingy and gray and dirty these linens truly were. And that's something of what happened to Peter. He realized the blackness and the sinfulness of his own heart and fell to the feet of Jesus, realizing that he had no right to receive mercy or love or attention from, from this man. Now in that light, what Jesus says to him is quite significant. The first words he says to Simon are, Do not fear. Literally, stop fearing. He says to Simon essentially, Well, Simon, you know, it, it is true. You are a sinful man. But that's okay, because that's why I came. I am the friend of sinners. You're in good company. It's okay. You don't have to worry. And then he goes on to tell Simon that your life is going to change from this point on. From now on, he says, you will be catching men. And this represented Peter's summons to, to full-time ministry. From now on, he says, you will be catching men. And just as you enclosed a great catch of fish on this day, so in the future you will enclose a great catch of men. The verb that Luke uses for Catching men is a verb that literally means to capture alive. And that's why fishing is such a good metaphor. In hunting, you capture your prey by killing it. But in fishing, you capture your prey alive. That's why we can indulge in catch and release fishing, which a number of my friends seem to indulge in. How would you do? Oh, it was terrific. We caught some real whoppers. Oh, can I see them? Well, I was catch and release. We, we let them go. 
But that's because you catch fish alive. And so this became a very vivid metaphor for the, the apostolic ministry that they would have. Uh, the sea in the scriptures is often a, a picture of humanity. And just as they went out into the depths of the sea, so the apostles would go out into the furthest reaches of humanity, uh, the remotest parts of the earth, as Jesus said, and taking the gospel to all classes of people. And just as they had enclosed a great catch of fish, so as they took the gospel out to people, they would enclose a massive quantity of, of humanity, capturing them alive to be given over to the service of a new master. And point of fact, uh, all of us this morning in this room have been caught in the net that the, these apostles first cast as they followed the Lord in the ministry. Well, Simon, I believe, learned a significant lesson or two from this episode. And I think the lessons that Simon learned can be related to several areas of life. And in drawing our study to a, to a close this morning, I want to suggest some of these these points at which the lesson that Peter learned touch us in our daily life. One area is the area of our involvement in uh, the marketplace. There are probably a number of us in this room who are working harder and enjoying it less. And we realize the, we are realizing the consequences of the fall. Now I'm f- fully convinced that that the Lord intends for us to find satisfaction of a certain kind in our work. If you go back to the early chapters of Genesis, you'll realize that work was something which was assigned to Adam before the fall. Even if he had continued as an unfallen man, he would have had responsibility. He had a vocation that God had called him to, to subdue the earth, to take something which was in chaos and disorganized and organize it and make it useful and productive. And if you look at the work that you do, the work that you will be reporting to tomorrow, your work will probably have something of that nature to it, that your work will include subduing something which is unassembled, which is out of order, which is disorganized, and making it orderly and productive and useful. And that's by God's design. And yet the fall, as Adam realized, spoiled all that. It tarnished it. It made uh, work something which involved the sweat of our brow and involved painful toil and discouragement and frustration at times. And I think what this episode reveals, although the Lord did change Simon's vocation at the end of this episode, he wanted him to learn something about his, his job in the marketplace before he did that. And that is that one of the things that the Lord has come to do is to undo what the fall has done, to reverse the effects of the fall. And one of the areas that he's concerned about is the level of satisfaction that we receive from our work. He's interested in that. He's concerned about that. He wants to fill our nets so that the jobs that we do have a measure of satisfaction. Now, he knows that we will never be completely satisfied in our work, that the fall has spoiled that until the Lord returns. And then, I'm sure, I'm convinced that we will have responsibility in the eternal kingdom, and we will realize what work all along was intended to be. But Jesus wants to begin the process of reversing the effect of the fall in your life. 
Now, the interesting thing to me is that what he says to Simon is that I don't want you to go out and do something different. What I want you to do is to go back out into the deep part of the lake and drop your nets in the same place that you dropped them all night long. Only this time, instead of counting upon your own hard work and diligence and cleverness and expertise to make your job satisfying, what I want you to do is to begin depending upon me and my word and my power. Go back to the same job, drop your nets in the same place, but now depending upon me to provide you with the fulfillment and the satisfaction that you are looking for. Talk to many people who are dissatisfied in the jobs that they, that they have. And the instant solution that recommends itself to us in those circumstances is a new job. You need to find a new boss or a new place of employment or higher wages. And uh, that occasionally is the Lord's counsel. But to the bulk, uh, the bulk of us, he says, what I want you to do is I want you to go back to the same office tomorrow morning. I want you to report to the same plant and drop your nets in the same place that you've been dropping them for all these months and years. And I want you to do so this time just in quiet dependence upon me, putting my word into practice in your job situation, trusting in my power to begin making that a rewarding and fulfilling experience. I have a friend uh, in management, lives in another city, by the name of Bob. He called me... Uh, Several months ago, and he was distraught over something that had happened to him in his job, he had been passed over for a promotion that he felt had been promised to him. He felt mistreated and, and misused and angry, and he wanted to quit and go find some place where he would be appreciated, treated fairly. And before he handed in his resignation, he wanted to talk to somebody about it. And so we talked about his, his situation, his relationship with his manager. And we talked through some of the utterances of the Lord, some of the bidding or some of the words of the Lord that might apply to his situation. One of the words of the Lord that we talked about was his need as a disciple of Christ to forgive his manager from the heart. That was something the Lord was asking him to do, just as he asked Simon to go out into the lake and drop his net. So Bob and I talked about that, the necessity of forgiving from the heart. A second thing that uh, we applied to his work circumstance was to be willing to humble himself under the mighty hand of God and realize that it was the Lord's responsibility to promote and the Lord's responsibility to advance him in his career and to be willing to humble himself under the mighty hand of God and trust God to exalt him in his timetable. And the other thing we talked about is the Lord's direction through the Apostle Paul to do his work heartily as to the Lord, to go back into that same office and throw himself back into his task to make his manager and make his office uh, successful. Well, he didn't think it would work. He was skeptical. He was reluctant, but he could see that this was what his master had asked him to do. And he was willing, in simple faith, to go back into his office and to put the, the word of the Lord into practice, to step out in faith and see what the Lord would do. 
And I was really delighted in talking with him again on the phone just a couple of weeks ago to discover that he had received several months later the very promotion that he had been passed over for before. And I believe what the Lord had done is honor him for his willingness to go back and cast his net in the same body of water, but to do so in faith and dependence upon him. Now, a second lesson, I believe, that uh, Simon furnishes for us is its relationship to our whole approach to the spiritual life. I think when Simon began this episode, uh, what he symbolized was what I call the Avis brand of Christianity, the we try harder approach to the Christian life. Simon was depending and counting upon his own hard work, his diligence for productivity and for fruitfulness. And often that's the way we come into the, into the Christian life, feeling like the solution to problems that we have is to try harder, to grit our teeth, to back up a step or two and, and hit it again. And if that doesn't work, we back up another couple of steps and hit it again even harder. And I think what the Lord was eager to teach Simon is there's another way to approach life, and that is the trust more brand of life not counting upon our own hard work and commitment and self-reliance, but in quiet, steady faith, depending upon the power of someone else to be at work to fill our nets. One of the stories I read to my children, uh, stories, concerning the friendship between frog and toad. One of these uh, stories, uh, frog had been envying toad's garden. He says, toad, I want to have a garden just like, like you do. And Toad says, okay, well, here are some seeds. Take it home and plant these seeds, and you can have a garden, just like I do. But I want to warn you, it'll be hard work. So Frog took the seeds home and planted them in his little garden plot there and sat there and watched them all day. And nothing happened. They didn't grow. So he started uh, yelling at his seeds, thinking maybe they needed some verbal encouragement. So he hollered at his seeds. Nothing happened. So he hollered louder. And uh, Toad heard this. He, he comes running over and says, Frog, what is all this racket I hear? And Frog says, well, I'm yelling at my seeds to get them to grow. And Toad says, well, don't yell at your seeds. That'll just make them afraid to grow. Frog says, okay. So the next day, he takes his violin out. Figures maybe they need sweet music. So he spends all day playing sweet songs on his violin. They don't grow. Maybe they need stories, he says. The next day, he gets up and he reads stories to his seeds all day long. And they don't grow. And the next day he goes out and he sings songs all day to his seeds. And still, they don't grow. And finally, utterly exhausted, he falls asleep. Well, next morning, Toad comes over and shakes him by the shoulder and wakes him up and says, Frog, Frog, look, you have a garden. And Frog opened his eyes and looked around. And sure enough, there were little green plants popping up all over his garden. And Frog turns to Toad and says, Boy, I'm so glad to have a garden, but Toad, you were right. It is hard work. (laughs) And what he needed to learn, see, obviously, was that there was a power, there was a life in that seed when it was planted that had been given to it by its maker, which if nurtured and, and watered would produce life all of its own. And that's what we need to learn about, the, about our walk with God, to patiently, quietly depend upon His power to be at work, to quietly, almost invisibly, begin to change us and produce the growth that we long for. 
But it's also striking in that connection that Peter's cooperation was required. You see that? That it was necessary for Peter to take a step of faith to put into practice the word of the Lord. If Peter had not been willing to go out into the deep and drop his nets, there would have been no miracle. All of the power of Christ was standing by to do this, but unless Peter had been willing to take that step of faith, put into practice the word of the Lord, nothing would have happened. And that's an important thing that we need to learn about the spiritual life, is that often for us, the parallel is to take a simple step of faith, doing what the Lord asks us to do, even if we don't think it will work or produce anything, but to do it in dependence upon the power of Christ, and simply because he asks us to do so. For instance, if you're developing an argument with someone and you realize that they are angry with you, a verse of Scripture might pop into your mind, a soft answer turns away wrath. Now, very likely you will, for one, have difficulty bringing yourself to doing that because what you want to return is an angry word, just like the one you've received. And furthermore, you probably don't think it will do any good. But nevertheless, that's what your master asks you to do, to return for a harsh and angry word a soft answer. Now, nothing will happen until we are willing to actually step out in faith and do that and return a soft answer to the angry one that we have received. That's the step of faith. When we do that, then all the power of Christ is made available to us, put at our disposal, to sustain us in carrying that out. But nothing will happen until we take that initial step of faith. Often what we want to do is we want to wait until we feel like obeying before we put into practice the word of the Lord. Well, Simon didn't feel like doing it, and he didn't expect anything to happen, but he was willing in simple faith, because he knew who Jesus was, to do it. And when he did, that faith unleashed the power of God. The way Augustine put it, I think, is, is very apt. Augustine said, without God, we cannot. Without us, God will not. A third area is in relation to ministry affecting the lives of other people. All of us, I believe, want to imitate Peter and the apostles in catching men. We want to see people around us captured alive for the Master. And I think Peter learned something again about how that takes place, not through our hard work, not through our cleverness, not through our ingenuity, not through our diligence or discipline, but through the quiet work of his power in response to faith. I think this might have informed uh, Peter's teaching to Christian wives married to non-Christian husbands in 1 Peter 3. It's natural for a Christian woman married to an, an unchristian husband to think that the way in which she can catch her husband, capture him alive for the master, is to communicate to him the gospel at every turn, as if it depended upon her energy and her communication of the gospel. And so uh, she might accidentally leave Dobson on the radio in the morning while he's having his bacon and eggs and slip little four law booklets into the Cheerios and uh, take advantage of every opportunity to communicate to him the gospel, leave books and pamphlets lying around within easy reach. 
But Peter says, no, that's not at all how a man in that situation is caught. If he's to be caught at all, he will be caught without a word, literally without a word about the gospel by the chaste and respectful behavior of their wives. Now, Peter may have learned that, that the secret to catching men is to do that, to simply do quietly and simply what the Lord asks us to do and to count upon His power to use that through us to make a difference in the lives of others. I ran across a quote recently which I think captures the result in life if we understand this truth, and with this we'll close. When we read the lives of the saints, we are struck by a certain large leisure which went hand in hand with a remarkable effectiveness. They were never hurried. They did comparatively few things, and these not necessarily striking or important. And they troubled very little about their influence, yet they always seemed to hit the mark. Every bit of their life told. Their simplest actions had a distinction and exquisiteness which suggested the artist. The reason is not far to seek. Their sainthood lay in the habit of referring the smallest actions to God. They lived in God. They acted from a pure motive of love toward God. They were as free from self-regard as from slavery to the good opinion of others. God saw and God rewarded. What else needed they? They possessed God and themselves in God. Hence the inalienable dignity of these meek, quiet figures that seem to produce such marvelous effects with such humble materials. Would you stand with me and we will be dismissed in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for this story and what we learned from it. We appreciate, your Lord, your concern and compassion for the struggles that we encounter at work. Pray that you'll enable us as we go back into the marketplace tomorrow to do so, not counting upon our hard work and not counting upon the job itself for satisfaction, but counting upon you to be at work in the marketplace to be the one that satisfies our needs. Pray that you'd fill our nets, give us a sense of purpose in our work. Pray also, Father, that you'd teach us how to depend quietly upon your great power and not upon our own energies, both for growth to maturity as well as for impacting and changing the lives of those around us. Thank you for your presence in your life and pray that we would be conscious of your strength and presence and the challenges that we face this week. Amen.